Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, a podcast about the visual production of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Kate Berry. I'm Dan Solberg. And today we'll be talking about Season 5, Episodes 7 and 8, The Gift and Hard Home, both directed by Miguel Sapochnik. I, just to start off, I have to say, I'm still enjoying these episodes. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I mean, there. I we know we talked about problems in the last episode, but I had remembered Season 5 being a lot worse than it was. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about these? I think I'm pretty positive on them. I feel like I think season five is turning into be a very transitional season mm-hmm. in terms of the the modes of the show. I would say that as much as I liked a lot of the plot beats and the structure of these episodes, the way scene to scene, what are the plot points, how do they tie together, and especially some of Miguel Sapochnik's northern cinematography mm-hmm. is truly lovely. Yeah, I would say I think the writing suffers. I think these are some of the weakest written episodes that we've had. And I don't I didn't go into that sort of like thinking or expecting this, but you know, it is the most sort of non-book material that we've had yeah. put together. Not that there aren't moments of good writing, but there are more moments of sort of like either weaker writing or returning to phrases and tropes of things that maybe popped up earlier and maybe raised an eyebrow but you're like okay well whatever that's fine one-off deal but then to like bring some things back it's like oh these are like catchphrases for these characters now and it's kind of like strange so i don't know i i think some of the writing is is not so great and it opens up to some sorts of like illogic that happens there's a number of times especially i think in well maybe it's in both of them but I think maybe especially in, in the Hard Home episode, really before we get to the Hard Home, because that's kind of its own thing. But I have like statements about what happens and I have like a question mark after it. Be like, is that what's happening? Is that like, is, does this make sense? You know, it feels like not, I don't know if it's plot holes or just like trying to wrap my, my head around. It seems like it gets a little fuzzy with the logic of geography and the logic of who knows what and all this kind of stuff. No, I think I think that's right. And I'm sure there'll be points that we that we highlight that are spe- uh, particularly egregious, but yeah, I think in general I still enjoyed watching it and maybe my expectations were just so low <laughs> that I'm like, "Oh, that wasn't so bad." But I think still, you know, room to criticize how thing. And it does maybe have the feeling that the pieces that are being set up since we've seen sort of what happens afterwards that they're not going to pan out in the in a mm. way that actually makes the way that they're being put together now worth it that it's sort mm. of like this isn't going to this isn't going to be worthwhile yeah but anyway to start with would you please do a rundown of the gift sure thing john publicly unchains torment to begin their journey to hard home macer Eamon dies in his chambers and at his funeral stam realizes just how few friends he has left at the wall gilly is assaulted by some brothers of the night's watch sam intervenes but is beaten by them Thankfully, Ghost emerges and scares off the attackers. Gilly patches up Sam, and they kiss. And then later, Gilly makes Sam say, Oh my. Sansa asks for Theon's help to signal for Brienne, but Theon rats out Sansa instead. Ramsay brings Sansa out to see that the old northern woman that said she would help Sansa has now been flayed by Ramsay. In Sansa's camp, swords are leaving the cause. The column gets stuck in the snow. Melisandre proposes sacrificing Shireen, and Stannis is repulsed. Tyrion and Jorah are sold at a slaver's auction under the premise that Jorah will compete in the fighting pits. In Danny's chambers, Dario is a little jealous of Danny's upcoming marriage to Hisdar. He suggests killing all of the wise masters. Again, I think he's done that before. 
Later, Danny and Hisdar visit one of the lesser fighting pits. Jorah sees that Danny is there and emerges out onto the field and beats everyone there. He then reveals himself to Danny, who is displeased. Tyrion then reveals himself as Jorah's gift to her. Down in Dorne, Marcella deflects Jaime's proposal to take her back to King's Landing, and the Sand Snakes and Bronn are doing stuff in the dungeons. In King's Landing, Elena is unsuccessful at confronting the High Sparrow. Littlefinger meets with Elena later and offers a gift of his own in the form of Lancel Lannister's confession. Cersei rubs her win in Marjorie's face, then proceeds to take her victory lap with the High Sparrow, who instead imprisons her on Lancel's testimony. So that's, is that, we end with uh, Cersei being imprisoned. I think that's the end of the episode, right? I think so. Which is crazy because there's that other big reveal of Tyrion meeting Daenerys, which seems like that's the big thing, right? That's where the episode ends. But they've just got kind of big thing after big thing to, to knock it out here with, so. Yeah. It does seem maybe that this is a, a pacing problem, that there are some stories that it feels like aren't moving really at all, like Stannis, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe even the the Theon Sansa like kind of false start but then there are things like Tyrion's reveal and like Cersei being taken prisoner that would seem like episode ending but they've mm. got more than one per episode yeah well you know just a comment generally about this so we've got like the meeting between Tyrion and Daenerys which hasn't even happened in the show or sorry haven't hasn't even happened in the books and there's so much lead up to this in the books the, the journey from Tyrion, from Pentos to Marine is long and arduous and has all these different twists and turns, far more characters, far more lo- locations and things that have that has to happen, steps along the way. I think it certainly makes sense to cut some of that, mm-hmm. to trim it down and make it more streamlined. But I think it does add to a weird sense of pacing for the show to sort of put this in here. And, and I just want... I have this quote up from the WB with regard to their decision to, to put this happening so quickly, and I think it might be telling as to like maybe where I feel a disconnect. They say, creatively, it just made sense to us we, because we wanted it to happen. They're two of the best characters on the show. Excuse me. They're the two best characters on the show. To have them come so close together this season and then not have them meet felt incredibly frustrating. Also, we're on a relatively fast pace. We don't want to do a 10-year adaptation of the books, or a 9-year adaptation. We're not going to spend four seasons in Marine. It's time to get these two together. It's hard to come up with a more eloquent explanation, but it just felt right. Varys puts Tyrion's mission out there in the season premiere, and this mission ends in Marine. So it just feels like we wanted to do it, we did it. You know? <laughs> yeah. What do you think about the claim that Tyrion and Daenerys are the two best characters of the show? I think it is incorrect (laughs) yeah yeah we can leave it at that but i agree uh especially at least for for Tyrion, unfortunately his trip to marine and his joining up with daenerys is sort of the end of what makes him interesting as a character right that we've talked about how Tyrion doesn't really have that much to do afterwards yeah they he gets into just supreme sort of talky mode here and again i think if you're going to put Tyrion in that kind of talking mode, it's going to rely on sort of the strength of the dialogue mm-hmm. to, to carry it. And I don't think the dialogue is necessarily... I don't think Tyrion's dialogue is necessarily that that bad or anything. Um, I think Danny's is, as it usually is, kind of uneven and has its weird moments of... Like, these characters are a weird clash, right? Yeah. Because just the, the modes at which they operate are, are so different and distinct. And so they're, 
they're both having to kind of adjust. And you know, I guess that would be awkward. So maybe it makes a, a little bit of sense. You want to? We could reel back here. And do we want to start at Castle Black? I think so. I mean, the episode starts there, and this opener, and really the scenes. Again, I was saying both the scenes at the wall and at Winterfell are just gorgeous. Yeah. And well, I don't think the scenes elsewhere really quite replicate uh, that, but these have a real sense of place. We open on a montage of shots of people just very close shots of, of people kind of readying the tools, readying the horses, yeah. getting ready to go out there. It's just this nice little sort of establishing montage of what's going on. We don't have a sense of like even what's happening just yet until we finally uh, see that Torment is being brought out with John. But it really focuses on the gear and all the things that are ne- needed to take this journey. And so you've feel really focused on the details and the like on the tactile elements of the world right like like here is here all the horse tack and here are here are the other things that need to go along with it and then that being the sort of logical continuation of that with Tormund's shackles that the sort of like the things that hold living beings Mm -hmm. right and at least Tormund loses his shackles and you you brought that up when we had the battle of castle black episode sort of the focus on the actual mechanisms of the combat and mm-hmm. all the different ways of this and this you know to focus on that again seems like that is definitely tied to a a night's watch sort of importance yeah the wall is another one of their instruments i don't know there could be something with that some good looks here that are exchanged the unchaining of torment is definitely this like public display like they obviously could have unchained him mm-hmm. inside but they bring him out and he like holds his arms up like see he let me out. And then Thorne has some some icy glares that he's giving off here. Yeah, and Tormund and Alistair are obviously staring each other down because Tormund almost killed him right. the last time they saw each other. Right. So that, I, I thought that was a good exchange to, to bring them out. And it's sort of, I don't think that's something that happens in the books, that they that they have this kind of connection where we saw them fight. So to, to bring that back yeah. to the fore. That was, good. that was a good call. Also, speaking of looks, we're seeing a lot of unhappy Ollie, and this will be a lot yeah. of this episode and next episode that we get the idea that this young man has something terrible in mind. Right. You know, and that's the last we really see of John this episode. We've got some more stuff with Sam and Gilly and Maester Eamon. What do you think of the way that they handled Maester Eamon's final words and passing here? I like it. I don't know how much it would matter to people who haven't read the books or don't mm-hmm. know about the whole Dunkin' Egg series it's sweet i know that the wb was very pleased with himself that they're like this is a unique death because he dies in his bed of old age right like they were very chuffed but i like it i think it's sort of bittersweet it's setting up sam being sent south to train to be a maester because he even says like get little sam south and so we see Mm. how these things are going to sort of fall into place i like the death i like the words that sam says at the funeral and then also alistair really like pick a better time guy to be like, you have no friends anymore, Tarly. Yeah. He so, really like leans over and like yeah, creeps I, into his ear. I liked it. Did you, what did you think of the death scene? I thought it was all right. You know, it's one of those things where even now, but especially on first viewing, there's so much of like prophecy stuff that Eamon says in the books in mm-hmm. his final words in it. So it was still this little bit of deflating being like, oh, I guess they're not going to go there. Like yeah. with any of it. And I, I think it's okay to have him die at the wall instead of on the boat because the whole reason of putting him on the boat is John was afraid that Stannis was going to burn him for this kind of king's lineage. Mm-hmm. And so that that threat is not in the show at this point. So no need to do that. And it then acts as this spurring moment for Sam to ultimately, we haven't seen it yet, but he'll get sent away essentially to be a replacement for Maester Aemon. Right. 
And so that all that all makes sense here. His final words are that he had a dream. He's telling Egg that he had a dream, his, his little brother Aegon, that he dreamed that he was old. I don't know, it's... And again, again so as a substitute for all of the prophecy and all of the, like, the dragon must have three heads mm-hmm. and uh, all the stuff about how he wants to go and help Daenerys if he could. Yeah. To have it be this kind of just, like, a much more human yeah. moment to be just about about aging and, and that Aemon was a person just like anybody else in some ways, that he would have these kind of visions and just, you know, think about being old and sort of having this disconnect that he actually is old. And, yeah. and what's the reality and what's the dream that mm-hmm. he's, he's talking, you know, he's talking to a brother that we can't see, but that doesn't mean that like I dreamt that I was old. Yeah. Could also just be like this life is passing and then I'll wake up and I won't be old anymore. Right. That's true. Yeah. So I think that it, his passing is bittersweet. And I think on a, on a sort of show adaptation level, it's a little bittersweet as well, where it has some nice moments to it. And it, I suppose if you if you don't know the book context, maybe it matters less. But knowing it's sort of like that, we we, we miss a lot of like kind of fun speculation. That's true. We do miss that. But it's an adaptation decision that again feels uh, more inclined to set wheels in motion mm-hmm. than necessarily to sort of continue expanding the world or sort of uh, adding new kinds of intrigue. Right? Let's keep the machine going. Yeah. And also added is Gilly's attempted rape and attack. Like, just, guys. Ike. Just because we hadn't had one yet this episode. (laughs) Um, Maybe, yeah. Especially, I think, because this is an aggregate so much now, this season in particular. It's like, we do not need this scene. Absolutely not. It's... Yeah. And especially since it's it's there for Sam to prove that he should get to have sex with Gilly, I think is the point. So he can that he can get beat up defending her honor and show that like I mean we know that they care for each other. I don't actually mind their their love scene afterwards. It's like mm. so awkward and so sweet. I actually really like that scene. But I think we were there anyway. Yeah. It could have been like, you know, we're sad about Eamon's death. Yeah, let's do this. Right. <laughs> it didn't have to be like. Well, now I'm terrified that everyone's going to try to rape and kill you. Let's hurry up and have sex before that happens. Yeah, they're they're reinforcing Sam's rather narrow views on masculinity <laughs> as well here. Like, what does a man do? You know, he, we already had him yeah. sort of assert this at the battle at Castle Black, and now it's being reinforced once again. Like, I have to defend my my girl here. Yeah, and it's also a repetition again of the same stuff that we had with Grey Worm and Missandei. It's like well, how do we get them to show their intimacy? Well, let's have the tough guy fall in battle and then the woman will come and mend his wounds and yeah. then we'll, we'll take some pity on him. Yeah. I mean, in the books, they also they also have a sort of sweet sex scene for the first time, but it's out of grief for Eamon. I feel like it would have mm-hmm. been equally earned without another scene of violence against women. And I think you're right that like, Sam and Gilly, who have a sort of atypical relationship in terms of gender roles, mm. that they could have maintained that instead of trying to be like, no, but look, he even though even though he's going to get his ass kicked, like he will stand up for her. It's like we we know, yeah. but also not every relationship has to be that. Right. Yeah. So I thought their love scene was really cute. I thought everything before that just get like get rid of it. Yeah. Who needs it? In terms of Sam's relationship with the Night's Watch, yeah, I get you could all. I guess you could say like it shows that 
it's the truth of Alistair's words, right? That he doesn't really have any friends left here. That he's got no one left to to really protect him. But they could have showed him getting picked on. It could have been they could like they could have called him Lady Piggy or whatever mm-hmm. that they had done from the very beginning, right? I feel like it doesn't ha- it doesn't always have to be directed at right. women. Right. I'm not. I know you're not nar- arguing that no, it no, should no. be. <laughs> no. I know. <laughs> the scene is bad. Yeah. And, and it's just, and then Ghost comes in. And it's like I don't know. Also, like. Wouldn't it have made more sense for John to take Ghost to Hardhome? It seems really strange that he'd be like, there, I don't know. It, yeah. And if they wanted to save money, they could have not had Ghost at all and just like not had the scene. Unnecessary. Unnecessary. Bad, <sighs> it was a bad choice. But some good choices, even if it was something that I was really critical of last episode, the Theon Sansa, the fact that they take the time to show her being locked up and not like really showing and not telling, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's... Good. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to wallow in her misery, but I think it's good to show some of like, just some of the details about what it means to be living at Winterfell for her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of wonder though, like, because of the way this is illustrated in, in this scene in this episode, like, maybe that would have been enough, really, right, mm-hmm. to sort of get the point across that this is an abusive relationship, and Sansa is is suffering here and looking for assistance where she can. She's locked away, right? That she asks Theon for help in this instance makes sense, not because she, like, you know, she can't fend for herself in mm-hmm. some ways, right? But Theon has access outside of the room. And maybe and, no one else does. Yeah. And she knows how to manipulate Theon, right? Mm-hmm. She, she tries to get under his skin a little bit. And uh, in this case... Not in the conventional way, because Theon's not a conventional person at this mm-hmm. point, but essentially telling him, reminding him of who of who he was and, and sort of the honor that he could embody once again. But he doesn't. Right, he doesn't. Yeah, so he goes right away to tell Ramsay. And they film this in a way that, that gets us very hopeful, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, it's Theon's long walk. He's like looking around. <laughs> is Who's watching him? He's going up the tower. We saw him look at the tower before. And then, you know, the reveal is like he gets to the top of the tower. It's actually Ramsay's tower, not the... The broken, broken tower. tower that we thought it might be. And he delivers the, the candle. And then later, of course, Ramsay brings Sansa out. And I think this dialogue here has a couple sort of strange points. In one part, they have this back and forth about, you know, who will succeed Roose Bolton here. And, you know, well, what if uh, Walda's baby is a boy? Mm-hmm. Won't she have the rightful claim? And, you know, he, she, Sansa says, you're a bastard. The trueborn son will always have the rightful claim. And Ramsay snaps back with bastards can rise high in the world. Look at your brother, Jon Snow. He's mm-hmm. Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And this is information that would be that is new to Sansa. I just don't know what Ramsay gets by giving this information. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. I think she needs to know because she needs to have a place to go. You know, they're trying like so much of it is just trying to about keep the story moving. Unless we've talked about the most interesting about Ramsay is his sort of his feelings of inferiority or, or insecurity. And so maybe she's really, I mean, she's obviously hit a nerve, right? And then he says, I've been naturalized by Tom. And she goes, mm-hmm. another bastard. But also another bastard who is king, right. right? And so then maybe pointing out her own brother. But I think, yeah, it's mostly so that when she escapes, she has a direction to go yeah. in. Probably he doesn't gain much. I can't think of anything that would make sense that would actually be a good reason for him to tell her this. Because it almost seems foolish. It's like, 
this would be maybe good information to keep from her. Like, especially they tried to kill John already, right? They sent yeah. Locke up there to try and kill him um, unsuccessfully. So, I don't know, it seemed like a weird, it seemed like an out of character, or if, if not out of character, then like that character kind of messing up. Yeah. But I guess it's, you might argue that, that she made him mad enough that he made a mistake. But usually mm-hmm. when Ramsey gets mad, he does something violent. He doesn't like flub what he means to True. say. I did think him taking Sansa to see the woman's flayed body is a lot like Joffrey taking Sansa to see Ned's head. I don't know that that's important other than it's just an echo of something we've seen before. And Sansa, this happens a lot to her. <laughs> but yeah, I, I did. I mean, that was a strange part. I did like a lot of their dialogue, mm. the way that each of them is able to sort of turn on and off certain feelings but Ramsay does it frighteningly well yeah Sansa has definitely reverted to a lot of latter day King's Landing with Joffrey Mm -hmm. sort of personality traits where she kind of will work in a barb here and there where she can find an avenue for it but you know has to sort of play along with everything but also say like my lord and I'm loyal to you my husband some things like Mm -hmm. that right yeah that she had to say when she was in King's Landing. Things are going really poorly in Stannis's camp. Yeah. Quickly. Happened really fast. Yeah. The snows <laughs> started all of a sudden. Yeah. And they're sort of getting getting trapped out there. And they've had 40 horses die. They also say they're starving. I'm like, eat the horses, guys. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And the Stormcrows flee. And Stannis starts really making grand pronouncements about what he will and will not do, which are going to sign his death warrant. Yeah. The Stormcrows, I don't think we have them mentioned previously. I think I just got a little confused because in the books, the Stormcrows and the Second Sons are all over in Marine. Yeah. Um, In fact, it's Dario is the second is in the Stormcrows, not the Second Sons, but whatever. Neither here nor there. But I don't think that they've actually been mentioned in the show, so. It's not as kind of this crazy leap of logic that like they would be all the way over there or something like no. that. But I, they all, they've also just been referring to them as like foreign sellswords. Yeah. And this was the first time I think they've been named. By name, yeah, I believe so. And Davos is always is trying to be the voice of reason. He's like, this isn't our time. But Stannis says, I will risk everything and we move only forward. But he does react with horror when finally Melisandre suggests the thing that she's been sort of holding back all right. along, which is, we should burn Shireen. Yeah. And then we also get a hint at, at what's coming because Melisandre says that she has seen herself at Winterfell. She doesn't mention having seen Stannis there. Yeah. And Stannis reveals his doubts. He asks Melisandre, like, are you sure? Do you mm-hmm. know this is going to happen? And yeah, that that's her explanation. Like, I've seen this very clearly that this is the case. It's just under a different premise. Yeah. Just you weren't actually there. Yeah. <laughs> So things up north are not great for most people. No. So Tyrion and Jorah are sold at the slaver's auction, which goes down pretty differently than it does in the books, almost in kind of opposite terms in some ways. Here in the show, Jorah fetches a a relatively high price as uh, somebody who's going to fight in the pits. Mm Mm-hmm. And Tyrion is interpreted as telling a joke when he says that he should come too and he's a good fighter and he beats the guy holding his chain with his own chain. Mm-hmm. In the books, Tyrion like essentially gets by on his laughter and his jokes and he's with this other character, Penny, and they do this act, this jousting act. And Jorah, on the other hand, is like, nobody wants this guy. He's like this sullen old guy. Yeah. 
Yeah. He he has sort of a different vibe in the books mm-hmm. and no one is like no one wants him. He's just a bummer. Yeah. He's a colossal bummer. <laughs> um and Tyrion has to plead, be like, No, he's part of the act. He's yeah. the bear, you know, the bear in the maiden fair, you know. And Jorah just like uh, insult to injury, then on top of all the other insults that he's now like been sold as this dancing bear. <laughs> Yeah. It's part of a comedy act. He gets increasingly pathetic. Yeah. Um, although he's pretty pathetic here too. So they're sold and are end up in a in a lower fighting pit that is just sort of separating the wheat from the chaff, I guess. And mm-hmm. whoever wins there, uh, we, they find out, will fight in front of the queen. Yeah. And so Jorah all of a sudden has a reason to fight. And Danny, uh, for, you know, Miracle of Miracles, is already here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and doesn't like it. And there's a pretty... I mean, it's not... See, and this is frustrating because, like, this was another like the like the Jamie Dorn fight, not the one at the Water Gardens. It's another fight that's that's well done, but is obviously not a good fight. These mm-hmm. are a lot of people who don't know how to fight, who are brought up against one or two who do, yeah. and so they know how to intentionally make a bad fight mm-hmm. look like interesting. And then there's the big reveal about Tyrion being the gift. Yeah. So I don't know. Makes quick work of hundreds of pages. Right, for sure. I thought it was notable that Jorah comes out and almost, you know, knowing Danny's displeasure with the fighting pits, kills no one. Mm-hmm. All non-lethal takedowns. Yeah. Maybe dislocated some some shoulders and probably a few concussions and whatnot. Knocked out some teeth, maybe. Non-lethal, no bloodshed that we could see. All internal injuries. <laughs> that's what Jorah's about. <laughs> Tyrion reveals himself as as the gift and that's that and it's that's the big shocker right for people watching this especially book readers this is like the big leap forward Mm -hmm. like not only are we moving beyond the books it's like you even seemed like you skipped a number of more kind of steps that were probably were going to happen in between this and then like because in the books the rest of of Daenerys' story will proceed with the great Daznak's pit Mm -hmm. Drogon coming down all that stuff is going to happen before Tyrion will even will even meet. So. Right. right. And we're briefly in Dorne at the Water Gardens. Yeah, we're in Dorne. That's uh, something else. <laughs> um, we're in prison. Yeah, there's there's that there's this great scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the there's the Jamie Marcella scene, which I don't I don't know if it's bad. It's I mean, I don't know that the writing is great, but it is, I think, illustrative of their relationship. Jamie's like, yeah. I'm gonna do this thing and Marcella's like, I'm a teenage girl, you don't know me. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to marry my boyfriend. And Get out of my face. Yeah, we're going to be very Dad. happy here. Bye. So, I mean, it's not, I don't know if this is a great scene, but I don't think they've ever spoken to each other before. Yeah. So I guess it gives you a, a sort of a temperature of what their relationship is like. Not good. Yeah, I think it's I think it's all right. Because I, mainly because I think it's a nice parallel to the scene that we had prior with Cersei and Tommen. Yeah. So we have the parent with their child. You know, here's here's two of them in King's Landing. Who Here's two of them in Dorne having these conversations and in both cases it's this strained thing where the teenager wants to do something very specifically that is kind of rebellious to whatever the parents want to do yeah so I I liked that that kind of connection in the prison though Mm -hmm. (laughs) well we do get a little here a little bit of uh, bronze singing talents which are sounds nice yeah he's he is a best-selling musician and then just a really gratuitous scene yep. of, like, apparently Bronn was poisoned. Nim 
I don't remember which one is which. I think it's Tyene. Tyene has the antidote and just, I don't know. How do you want to describe this? I think gratuitous is the okay. only that that had that we hadn't. Oh, maybe it was because Gillian's Gillian Sam's sex scene, while sweet, had no nudity, and so they were like, "Oh my gosh, we've had an episode with no nudity. Get Tyene's boobs out." Yeah, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> and I know people were critical of this too because she was, I think, the only of the Sand Snake actresses who hadn't had any combat training. Mm. Like, so it was she was already sort of a weird pick, and mm. they were like, maybe they picked her for this scene rather yeah. than the fighting scenes. They probably did. And I, I don't know. It's one thing to, to do a scene like this. I, I wish they would have maybe made it a little bit more explicit that, like, she's trying to, like, get the poison to work faster by, like, increasing the blood flow or something like that. Like, getting his heart rate going, you know? Maybe that has yeah. some sort of aspect. I, that's what I interpreted was going on. But it's just sort of, that, that's not sort of detailed. And the camera is really leery yeah. in this. It's, and it's supposed to be bronze perspective and he's probably a leery guy but yeah and then you also just love like i mean it makes sense why braun likes tyene right Mm -hmm. and but then she's like i also find you very handsome and like jerome flynn's okay (laughs) but come on (laughs) so and i I, if i'm if i want to be really generous they we they wanted to give us a little sneak peek of the long farewell right but it could have been different it's one of those things where, again, it feels like the general plot beats of them being in the dungeon, and I guess if you want to introduce this poison thing, I, I suppose that it's okay. I don't, yeah, I, that that happens, but it's just sort of the way that it's carried out is really drags the Dorn plot down further. Like we thought, like okay, maybe they just flubbed <laughs> this fight scene and they just had a weird situation with with this location. But turns out, no. no, there's there's more kind of off about this storyline. At least Obara and Nim are rolling their eyes the entire yeah. time. Um, they see it coming. Yeah. And that's kind of funny. That they're just like, this, this girl. <laughs> but yeah, not not my favorite. They are asking, like, how much can we dig ourselves in a hole with yeah. the Dorn plot? There's a, there's a nice visual parallel between... There's a number of visual parallels this, this episode. There are a lot of sort of diametric opposite kind of conversations people framed on different sides of the of the screen and that's the case here where there's a shot that's sort of centers this window that's letting light sort of seep through we can't really see outside it's all blown out and then the two cages with the hands kind of clutching the bars on each side and braun reaching out to for the antidote and that parallels a, a nice shot back at winterfell where Theon is preparing the tray to mm-hmm. go into Sansa mm-hmm. and sort of has it. He's picking it up off the floor, centering area, and these, you know, these both prison scenes, essentially. Got a lot of prison scenes around these parts these days. <laughs> and so that shot has that, that nice kind of parallel to it. But as far as everything else that happens in this scene, yeah. I don't know, it could have been... Yeah, I know. I know, and they, I've, they've been very defiant. They're like, we don't like bending to criticism of the show, mm-hmm. but there are some notes that you can take, guys, yeah. uh, about like, just the. I mean, although the show overall is better about shoehorning less nudity, and I think, but they still get uncomfortable if they go too long without yeah. it. Yeah, I just, I think someone should have, someone should have done a rewrite. Maybe <laughs> could have made this a little different. Yeah, I agree. But you were right that there, there, there's a symmetry between the conversation between Jamie and Marcella in Dorne and then in King's Landing, Cersei and Tommen speak. Cersei is 
I mean, maybe this isn't a surprise, is not as good of a mom as she thinks she is. <laughs> because she really seems to not, I mean, she's causing her son a lot of pain and is like really stunting him as a person. Because mm-hmm. instead of developing his confidence as a king, He's like, I can't do anything. And she's sort of like, yes, you can't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's not a surprise how Tommen will end up fairly soon. And we've, uh, it's a repeating trope. This is actually a trope I quite like of Joffrey saying, I am the king and Tywin's retort of like, if you have to say that, Mm -hmm. then you're no king. Tommen repeatedly says that I'm the king and I can do nothing. He at least seems to understand that he's kind of a false king in a certain sense, (laughs) a puppet king. But some of the final stuff of the, of the episode will be Cersei getting imprisoned, saying, I'm the queen. Right. You know, this kind of thing. Which so. is what Marjorie yelled as she was being taken right. away, too. So, yeah. So that's a sort of little snapshot into Cersei and Tommen's dysfunction. Mm-hmm. It, and it seemed like at times Cersei was toying with sincerity at times here in terms of she genuinely, I think, saw that her son cared mm-hmm. about Marjorie and, and really was expressing this depression this sadness and this sort of want and and helplessness and she wants to help her son she also really hates marjorie though so you feel like she's one step from being like we could get you another wife (laughs) um and so i think she what what i'm seeing is the mental gymnastics going on inside cersei's head in this scene is all right I'm going to do the thing that is going to comfort my son, knowing full well that when I go to talk to Marjorie, it's just going to rub it, be to rub it in her face. Yeah. Yeah. The conversations between Olena and the High Sparrow and Olena, I mean, the conversation between Olena and Littlefinger are purely to move the plot forward. Right. There's not really that much interesting about them. And he explains a little bit what he's done. They reiterate that they work together to kill Joffrey. And then mm-hmm. he says, here's a gift. The conversation between Olenna and the High Sparrow is a little bit more complicated to me because Olenna is supposed to be, and he even says like, you pride yourself on being able to sniff out people's hidden agendas or whatever. Yeah. And she she thinks the High Sparrow is a fraud. I don't know. I don't think it's ever actually revealed one way or the other if he is some someone who is who is so dedicated to the project of equality mm-hmm. and bringing sort of righteous living or if he's interested in in getting power at least in the like if he's wants to accrue power for the church right but elena certainly thinks it's the latter but he does do and this is something you brought up episodes ago that like you are the few and we are the many mm-hmm. and that this is what happens when the many no longer fear the few and so that's that seems like a an honest assessment of what he's doing. Yeah, and I like the way that conversation ends where he he asks Elena, you know, have you ever worked the fields? Do you know even who works the fields in terms of like, you're going to try to cut off our our supply line? Who do you think the field workers were going to side with in this regard? Right. You know, you or or the general populace. That said, I do think there's a little bit of a a intellectual disconnect here where Elena says, what do you want, gold? And it's like, clearly not like come on this yeah. guy does not want gold he's he's wearing a sack and and scrubbing the floors himself right like there's plenty of other people to do this work yeah. um he, he's not interested in it I, so is it do you think it's supposed to be like sort of a rare misstep on olena's part that maybe uh, I, I think she's just out of ideas yeah. you know she's i feel she feels like she's tried everything can i just and it's just like can i bribe you will that work yeah. i guess we really and maybe even earlier than i realized that like House Tyrell 
its fate is signed pretty early, that it is mm-hmm. a house in decline after this moment. Yeah. Like there's no really coming back. And she is, she's, she is out of ideas. She, she only knows really how to deal with people one way. It's mostly money mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter after Marjorie and Loras are taken. There's kind of no going back. And like extremely resigned, right? She admits to the charges against them. Like it seemed like they're going to have a trial to find the truth of the charges. Yeah. But Elena's like, well, yeah, he, Laura slept with these other boys and Marjorie lied for him. It's like, well, you didn't have to say that <laughs> to the judge. <laughs> yeah. But maybe that point is that Marjorie and Loras are actually not hypocrites because they were never hiding what they were doing. Mm. And it's Cersei who has been the liar. So if the High Septon is actually interested, or High Sparrow, whatever, if he's actually interested in uncovering truth mm. and like stripping people of their lies, Loras, I mean, everyone talked about it being an open secret. He has never really hid who he was. Yeah. And so that may be part of her point is that like, my grandchildren were not actually very secretive about what kind of people they were. Mm-hmm. Cersei, on the other hand, is not honest about her life. Right. Yeah. So it was a good conversation. I'm, there's still some things about it. Maybe I just like Lady Olena so much that I want her always to be a correct assessor of character. Yeah. But and it's it's is great to have as many kind of conversations. She's got such a great wit to mm-hmm. her, and so all these kind of the more scenes we can bring her into, usually for the better here to have these conversations with High Sparrow and Littlefinger. You know, there's not too much to the conversation with Littlefinger. I was maybe I'm just not remembering this correctly. Littlefinger says that, you know, I'm going to bring you a gift, the same gift that I gave to Cersei, the gift of a, I don't remember, it's like a handsome young man or something yeah. like that. And it's referring to Lancel here, but like, who's the handsome young man that she's bringing Cersei? Robin? Or maybe, is he the one who gave Olivar? Did he, because he was the one who initially mm-hmm. planted Olivar for Loras, right? Oh, uh, maybe. So maybe, he may be admitting that like, okay. I'm the reason. That, that may be... That may be it. I don't know. Yeah, it could be it. He's that saying, makes like, sense. I, I'm basically giving you guys the same information against each other. Maybe. Yeah. Because that would also make sense, like, even if, even if he's friends with the Tyrells, like, he wants to bring everyone down so that he can be king. And so right. he's like, everyone just, like, cut your own throats or cut yeah. each other's throats. So I guess he's just like, well, here's, you know, this isn't going to fix your problem, but here's a bit of revenge. Yeah. And sorcery... <laughs> <laughs> Cersei comes to visit Marjorie in a really I love that scene. Yeah, I love that scene too. Especially since Marjorie is not pretending anything anymore. <laughs> Her hair's a mess. Uh-huh. She's in a rag and she calls Cersei a hateful bitch. And throws and... the pan at her. I love that. <laughs> and Cersei is pretending to be all lights and rainbows and it's You're not in your right mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like that. And then but then it's revenge is so quick because she leaves and then things fall apart uh-huh. for Cersei as well. And I really like the the conversation, the, the or sorry, not really, the monologue, I should say, that the High Sparrow gives about this old chapel and really sort of like lays out his agenda and where he's coming from and that nobody put their, puts their name on any of this stuff. You know, his whole thing about stripping away the finery. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, a good, it's a good setup. It's a nice, tense setup. It, hard to think about me not knowing that that's where that was going just because i had read the books at that point to to sort of see the turn happening though you had to know like we've had a number of characters warning cersei like 
this is they're going to get you at some point. Like, you can't keep doing this. And so it was really only a matter of time, but here here it is. Yeah. And it does make sense the High Sparrow's attack on Cersei is about the Sept and about the sort of building and about this altar that it is really fitting that Cersei's eventual revenge is to blow all of it up. She's mm-hmm. like, so you prefer this to Baylor's Sept? I'm going to destroy all of it. Like, there's something about the building that is actually the offense to her, mm-hmm. right? Because she was trapped with this story of, like, the pure faith where people, you know, have no vanity. Yeah. And then, then she's like, okay, well, I'm going to take everything. The look she gives when Lancel is coming out is so <laughs> great. Yeah. I love it. Her head does not move, and she has these eyes that dart over to the side. And it's like, what? what's over there? And then, like, slowly they kind of... They dart over, they come back to the High Sparrows just to say, like, what are you doing? And then they dart back yeah. to see him coming back. And we haven't seen anything. We just see, like, hear a door open. Mm-hmm. And we can assume that might be the back end of Littlefinger's plan here and then bringing Lancel out. I do think it, it becomes a little confusing as to what information was brought forward when. If Lancel, you would think, confessed a number of things when he joined the Faith, I guess maybe the implication is here that he just kind of joined and sort of maybe did things you know absolved himself quietly or something like that or personally and i guess it's possible confess. that he he also could have confessed without naming mm. Cersei. he could have been like i killed my cousin's husband mm. i slept with my cousin their cousins right or his, is she his their aunt? cousins yeah. okay like he could have confessed his own sins mm. i guess without naming her true i could see that because it, this is different than the way that it goes down in the books essentially Lancel has confessed already, and so this is something then an accusation that Cersei denies, or actually, excuse me, when she finally will admit to confess, she actually will own up to sleeping with Lancel mm-hmm. and the Kettle Blacks. She sees that as sort of like, well, since Lancel has already confessed, they're going to believe him. They're not going to believe me if I deny this, so I might as well just go along with it. Right. And it's that scene is a lesser charge. And the Kettle Blacks, at least one of them, is, is tortured. Right. And so she kind of has to own up for that as well yeah and it's in that instance it's kind of like she's not necessarily she wasn't married to robert at the time Mm -hmm. and so the charge is fornication and well i guess incest also with lancel but uh you know the targaryens wed brother and sister for generations and also i mean tywin lannister married joanna lannister who was his first cousin and Mm. that wasn't considered incest yeah so, I don't know. Laws are slippery. Laws are Incest slippery. Incest is also slippery. That's true. <laughs> though, I guess, on the other hand, though, they do mention a number of times where the faith does seem pretty opposed to the Targaryens. Yeah. So, they might not. They might be less inclined to be like, well, just because the Targaryens said this is okay, you know, we, we're not into that. The Targaryens brought a lot of limits onto the faith, I think. And mm-hmm. so, because they were more powerful than everything combined. Yeah, and they weren't, uh, they weren't of Westeros originally, so they didn't. They didn't have the seven gods. They didn't worship that. They had their own stuff. Yeah. And then Septa Unella takes her away. And Cersei has this great line of like, look at my face. It'll be the last thing you see before mm-hmm. you die. And then the door closes. Little people slam shut. Just a really, that ending I really like. Even though I knew it was coming. But they, they like gave me everything that I would have wanted from Cersei being arrested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was this kind of sad, this Righteous retribution yeah. being exacted. So that will bring us to a close for The Gift. It was an episode full of gifts yeah, of various sorts, very literal title, and then literal, I am the gift, you know, <laughs> and then a number of other smaller gifts along the way. Everybody's kind of giving something. Mm-hmm. But we've got Hard Home coming up next. 
Do you want to give us a recap of that episode, episode eight? All right. Tyrion is able to talk his way into Daenerys' service and convince her not to execute Jorah, but to send him away. Jorah, for his part, sells himself back into slavery in order to fight in front of Daenerys again at the Great Pit of Daznak. Cersei is imprisoned, beaten by Septa Unella, and visited by Kyburn, who tells her that Pycelle and her uncle Kevin are running things in King's Landing. Arya, as Lana, is learning to see and planning her first assassination for the Faceless Men, but the waif doubts she's ready. Theon accidentally tells Sansa that he didn't actually kill Bran and Rickon, and Ramsay tells his father that he needs just 20 good men to defeat Stannis. Tormund, Jon, and other men of the Night's Watch arrive at Hardhome. Tormund kills the Lord of Bones, and Jon is able to convince some wildlings to come south of the Wall. As they evacuate, thousands of whites attack, and Jon fights and kills a walker with his sword Longclaw. With only a small fraction saved, having lost the Bag of Dragonglass, Jon leaves the shore knowing that he has failed, and that the Night King has many more bodies for his army. It's a big ending, for sure. Oh, the ending is, I mean, everything at Hardhome. Yeah. I, I love it. I, it was what I was looking forward to. It's so well shot. The characters are really fun. I love the, she only lasts part of an episode, but Carsey. Carsey, yeah. I liked her a lot. We meet Woon Woon. We see the Night's King, and he's like very sassy. I really love the hard home parts of this episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We could just start there since it is a little bit of like a half of a bottle episode here. Yeah. Quite a bit. I don't know. You know, there's quite a bit more to this episode than the hard home stuff, which I didn't realize how much of it it was. I thought it was like maybe two thirds hard home and maybe one third, just kind of like a couple other things that we do go to a lot of places though. Yeah. uh, uh, Yeah. Other than hard home, but at hard home, you know, we have John sort of arriving with Tormund and they have this confrontation with the Lord of Bones. And is the implication that Tormund has killed the Lord of Bones here. Is that what happened? I I thought so. There's a lot of blood from his head. True. I, I that's what I wrote in my recap. Mm-hmm. I thought Lord of Bones is dead. It was a little bit of a comedy death. I felt like <laughs> I don't know. And I also the actor. I guess they had like four or five staffs, mm-hmm. and he broke all of them um, when he was beating the Lord of Bones in when they were filming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's weird that it's funny. I guess it's also. I mean, the Lord of Bones won that name is funny yeah his get up is funny yeah and then when that Tormund would be so upset at the implication of a relationship between he and john that he's he'll beat a man to death it gives us like a picture of what it's like to be a wildling Mm. it's pretty violent i I do i think it's uh i think that this is a little bit of the start of Tormund becoming a little bit more of a comedic character though like we've only seen a little bit of it you know him telling his stories at the camps but that's kind of, for the most part, just the fact that he's like kind of this big kind of bear of a character and he seems a little kind of actually sort of warm and fuzzy if you like can get him in the right situation. Right. And so this, I felt like, was a little, a taste of the more jokey torment that I suspect we will get next season, I guess. But it's only kind of hints of it here. Yeah. Well, certainly once he meets Brienne, then it becomes... Maybe that's, maybe that's when it is. Becomes mostly desirous looks. This is like ogling. <laughs> <laughs> So they arrive. I like the detail that they put into this large group of wildlings. The costume designer, Michelle Clapton, had five groups of wildlings in mind. And so Mm. if you look closely, you can see that these are different tribes who some have clothes that show that they live in the forest or by the coast or in caves. Or so like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of nice little details showing that this isn't just one because they they talk a lot about the wildlings not being a cohesive group. And she did her best to like 
show that they don't all live the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Carsey seems like she might be some sort of combination of a couple characters, including someone called like Mother Mole, who mm-hmm. is supposed to be sort of a leader yeah. character there that that everybody that everybody listened to, and that's kind of why so many wildlings gathered at Hard Home mm-hmm. in, in the first place. And you know, we, we we in those different tribes, then there's different reactions to to John's and Torment's right. proposal here. Yeah, John gives a, a great pep talk. And mm-hmm. Carsey says, you know, Tormund, if you vouch for this man and say this is the way, mm-hmm. then they're like, this is the way. And it doesn't seem like, I wouldn't even say that most of the wildlings agree, but some do. Although mm-hmm. the Thens very vocally right. do not. And nobody likes the Thens. <laughs> as, is, as is clear, not even among the wildlings. They do seem a little tropey of like every, I mean, and, and I mean, there's a reason I called it a pep talk. Even if I jo- enjoyed John's talk, it sounds like every locker room speech right (laughs) and this is a little bit like we don't do it because we have to we do it because we need to Mm -hmm. and they like that sort of things that you say when you're trying to get people pumped up and that's maybe what torment is guilty of give it 110 percent yeah (laughs) yeah i think they say they get about five thousand people onto the boats and as soon as carsey shows that she has two daughters who gets on the boat like you know that she's not gonna make it yeah She's like, you're in charge now. <laughs> you know, that's a kiss. Of yeah, death. I do like the exchange she has with John, though, where because it it becomes this conflict for John as leader. He knows that things back at the wall are unfriendly to the wildlings. Mm-hmm. She says, if you, she's encouraging, like get on the boat. And John's like, no, I'm the hero. I gotta stay, stay, stay here and save everybody. Mm-hmm. That's my deal. Yeah. And she's like, well, if you die you know, then who's going to let my kids through the wall, right? You know, think the other crows there are going to remember your orders and honor them? Probably not. So maybe you should get on the boat so you can actually do your job. And that's a, I think that's an interesting, complicating point to John as hero character. Yeah. I mean, it ends up getting swept under the rug because he stays and he still does it anyway, right? <laughs> but in theory, a complicating fact. Right, that it's like your job, you may be more valuable, like, on the boat so mm-hmm. you can say i'm the boss let these people through yeah and then there's the whole fight scene which is awesome and there's lots of cool details i read you know that they wanted to make this much bigger initially but they mm-hmm. didn't have the funds but i think it i think it's effective the way that it is especially putting it in the sort of enclosed space mm-hmm. quarry uh, yeah it, it there's something scarier about feeling penned in mm-hmm. and they're like especially when the, the scene where all the white, uh, whites just throw themselves off the cliff, there's this feeling of like, there is nowhere to go. They're really good, like, which is an effective horror thing. Yeah. And the whole thing has a real horror vibe to it, albeit a, a kind of a big action part of a horror thing. It's, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of slow building dread or anything like that. Um, there's a little little moments of that, but they're they're quickly sort of get into sort of action mode but especially with like they're in the there's like a lodge house and you can hear the skeletons coming up the ceiling mm-hmm. but you can't see them like right. that's a good horror thing like you hear it before you see them you know it's coming but where are they there's the, the part where the thin is looking through the, the peephole mm-hmm. um, after they've closed the gates and there seems like there's a slaughter going on and you just see these clouds and a couple of shadows rushing by and then of course the one emerging from from the snow to lunge and lunge his arm through the hole yeah. ultimately to get chopped off but right we also get a pretty good look at several whites mm-hmm. and this is the the new whites that look a little bit more human a little less i don't know caveman or like yeah. forest dweller i did i just want to remark because it's going to be something that i just regret about the show that they have like the knight's king 
is wearing metalwork that has symbols on it. And mm. I'm like, that means something. <laughs> These cannot just be like mindless, cultureless like beings. They mm. have they have metalsmiths and they have symbols. Like so I'm just I'm frustrated that they would show that detail, probably because it looks cool, but that we'll never find out what mm-hmm. it means. Well I think the the way that the character that the the White Walkers fight also is telling of that. John fights one of them and one because it's tv they want to make it an actual fight Mm -hmm. and so but he doesn't just go up to him it's like oh well your back is turned i stabbed you you're dead right right he like grabs him and he's like no we are going to fight i am a warrior and you seem like you could fight me so let's do it and later when they're on the boats and and floating away they're still doing uh the the whites and the white walkers are still slaughtering and there's another one that we haven't seen before then who like kill somebody and sort of like turns almost to the camera which is turning to john and saying like haha look what i you know sort of like a little bit of showy yeah um, and of course the the night king is very showy right the come at me bro right. uh gesture so they definitely have some personality and maybe even you know personality distinctions between individuals right, right. i know there's a whole culture out there i know <laughs> dan <laughs> I'm just frustrated that that the whole point of the show is that everyone has good and bad. And even from someone's perspective, they're doing the right thing for mm-hmm. their family or for their group. And that the, this show says that's true of everyone except these big baddies. Mm-hmm. Where the, But they're giving us so many other indications that that's not true. That these people, people these beings, mm-hmm. also have motivations. And there may be a reason that they're trying to break down the wall. Could be. Reason they're trying to kill everyone. Could be. I don't know, Dan. <laughs> I also love the end, the feeling of defeat, the fact that they take away the music and you just hear the sort of the the splash of the waves and the howl of the wind and that it's a really, even though there's a cool fight and you're happy that John and Tormund are still alive and we still have Woon Woon and they got 5,000 people on the boat, Mm. this feeling of failure. I really like that ending. I think it's very strong. It's it's really strong. The quietude, the sort of the far away kind of aerial shot Mm -hmm. of just the stillness of everything, just all these kind of resurrected beings standing still and then this one solitary boat, you know, getting further and further away. And it's just sort of like, of course, they got more people than just that one tiny boat, but that sort of illustrates the point, right? Yeah. You, you came here to get all these people. You ha- you got so few of them compared to the mass that then still got added to right. the, the army of the dead. And there's the maybe other question, did the whites come because you were there because mm-hmm. the because the white uh, walkers realized that you were going to take away possible bodies for their army mm-hmm. and so like by trying to save them that you actually kind of doomed the wildlings yeah. and how many did you lose in the in the process yeah of your own right we also learned that valyrian steel kills mm-hmm. white walkers we didn't know that there even the white walkers seemed a little surprised by this <laughs> yeah. which was a kind of a pretty great shot actually <laughs> he's like oh <laughs> what <laughs> yeah that was that was great. It's something that's sort of hinted at in the books, but hasn't been confirmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Although, again, uh, as like every, I feel like every website or anyone who writes about that is quick to point out that there isn't that much Valerian steel in the world, so mm-hmm. that's not actually that helpful. Right, helpful for John. Helpful yeah, for, for, helpful for our hero characters who are the the rich kids who have the who have the good swords. Yeah, but most people are still out of luck. Yeah, uh, I mean the big plot point if we go back to Winterfell is that Sansa finds out that Bran and Rickon aren't dead. Right. 
or at least as far probably as probably aren't as, dead as far as she knows um, as far as we know we have we don't see brian this season so we presume he's still doing okay and we haven't seen rick in forever yeah and then ramsey has a suggestion as you said in the recap of going out to fight stannis which seems like a really dumb idea is something that essentially one of the phrase suggests in the books which is i think we're supposed to associate with stupidity that Frey would say like let's go fight him like right no like that's stupid Especially when Winterfell is really well prepared for a siege. Mm -hmm. And then just the only reason I even mention this stuff is because Ramsay mentions the phrase feast for crows, which is a (laughs) reference to the books, which is not the only sort of like hidden little book reference that they have in here. And I think it's telling of, again, maybe a little bit of a different mode to the writing, which Mm -hmm. is less of like adaptation and more like wink and nod to people who read it. It was like, here's just a little Easter egg for you as opposed to necessarily like always following through and all this stuff. Or they're diverging so much they have to remind us that like this did come from a book, A Feast right. for Crows. Right, exactly. Yeah, and things are also not going very well in King's Landing. Right, Cersei, we, we just kind of have like a number of check-ins yeah. with her here and they're all bad for Cersei. Um, <laughs> yeah, Septuunella is a jerk Yeah, <laughs> offering water and confess and when she won't uh she gets hit with the ladle yeah many times it's a little rough kyburn comes in and bears a, a whole host of bad news yeah kevin is back but he won't come see her Tommen's not eating mm-hmm. uh, jamie's still mia picel is sort of in charge with kevin and mm-hmm. which would have i mean picel has actually been very loyal to the lannisters but he doesn't trust cersei anymore yeah. so he might be uh, more inclined to follow kevin mm-hmm. um and then in the one scene where Septuunella then pours the water on the ground, Cersei has lowered herself to the degree where she's trying to sip it off the floor, and they play the reins of Castamere over that, mm-hmm. which, you know, brought low is all about sort of the reins being brought low, right? So here we go. Yeah. Now it's Cersei's turn. And for uh, a song that's really been overused, it I is. Think it is, but I do think this is a good a good use. It's, it's good. It's a little on the nose. But. <laughs> it would feel less on the nose if they didn't use it so much. Yeah. It maybe, it maybe it would feel less on the nose if Cersei wasn't putting water on her nose. Just, just yeah. maybe. Yeah. Things are going badly for Cersei. But Arya seems to be pretty happy in Bravos. Yeah, weirdly. <laughs> she is strangely happy with everything that's happening there. I guess, I guess uh, Maisie Williams was ecstatic that she got a costume change because she had been wearing, I mean, I guess she has been wearing the House of Black and White clothes, but before right. that she had had the same outfit for three years. Yeah. And so she was really excited to try on like cool Bravo's clothes. Yeah. She gets some fun, uh, I don't know, they're not pigtails, they're kind of top knotty yeah. side, not, I don't know. Side braids? Yeah. Like pig knots. <laughs> That's definitely not what they're called. But she's she's learning to see. She gets her first assignment. And she will be giving her own gift for the, the thin man. Well, at least she's supposed to. Yeah, she gets the assignment. She turns away from Jochen with this poison in her hand. And mm-hmm. she just smirks. Mm-hmm. Like, ha oh, great. I'm going to get to kill this guy. <laughs> she's really psyched about it. And another, and another little Easter egg that they throw in this, she says every morning, she's having a conversation with Jockin where she's recounting her day, and then they show us clips of the day being carried out. Mm-hmm. And so she says, every morning, I make my way down to the canals. And just when she says canals, they have a cat 
yeah. run under the thing and it's supposed to be like oh because in the books she's the cat of the canals is sort of is her nickname you know and again another like easter egg reference that they right that they toss in there i want to express another frustration with this plot line because the whole point of this lesson is and they, they emphasize it that she is training to see to mm-hmm. be aware of her surroundings and that she doesn't learn very well no and so it's 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 frustrating to me that this is a part of her training explicitly that you will learn to really see and observe the things around you and and notice when things are off right mm-hmm. and this is part of what you should know as a, a faceless man and when her time comes she'll be attacked and not be able to see but also like i don't i don't know i will, I will get to it but I, I i it's frustrating that what has she actually learned mm-hmm. with the faceless men if not how to do that yeah and i think i also think it's strange it's and it's gonna keep going down this road i believe it's like why does jocken not see this he can see so much else about yeah. racs even the most minute little lies that they that she puts out but he can't see that she has absolutely no desire to really be a faceless man and just wants to learn to kill better you know, yeah. and maybe meet out some sense of justice when, when it's convenient for her. And, like, it's either he can't see it for some unknown reason mm-hmm. or he kind of secretly wants to help her. Well, and that that I do... I, there was this weird line where the waif says she's not ready and Jacken replies, it's all the same to the many-faced god. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of suggests to me that, like, as long as someone dies, yeah. it doesn't matter. But I wish that if that were true, that something had made that more explicit. That mm-hmm. like if if it's really just a death cult, which it kind of is, that if it became more clear that even though you're assigned this person, we really just want you to kill someone. For as far as like uh, having an assassination contract, for sure, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think I think the only other instance we had that might support something like that would be back at Heron Hall where essentially Jockin and Rorge and Biter were saved from the fire. And so he says, we got to kill three people because you you saved us from the fire, right? Yeah. And so it does, sort of doesn't matter. You tell us who you want us to kill, and that would be that. But for essentially in this case, which is a situation where justice is being meted out, but it, it just so happens to be kind of a just cause here mm-hmm. uh, somebody who's been wronged um, but it doesn't have to be as we'll see later right it doesn't have to be and so it's the fact that you would have an assassination contract that then could be not carried out and be like you know we're going to tell the person who, who paid so- somehow even though they say they have no money somehow they paid this very expensive assassin's guild to kill this person that they would then be like oh sorry we didn't kill him our assassin got killed but, you know, we're cool with it, so I hope you're fine. It seems like this would be maybe an exception to that. Be like, religiously, maybe we're fine with this. We got our death. That's mm-hmm. cool. But we still have this contract. And, you know, what kind of an Assassin's Guild... We have to keep the lights on. ...doesn't honor the contract. Yeah. So, so nobody's going to come keep coming to the Assassin's Guild if it's just the Assassins keep dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, And it also... And we'll get to this especially in a bit when we talk about some of Daenerys' dialogue... But it may just, they may have just thought it sounded cool for Jacken to respond, it's all the same to the many-faced god. I really think that they're getting into that territory with a lot of this stuff where it's like, yeah, that's cool. I mean, especially with some of the stuff where Jacken ends up 
proud papa at the end of next season or whatever, which is <laughs> awful. But I think this is the seeds of that. Yeah. And if we're ready, Daenerys, I think, is the most guilty of this. Or has yeah. it... I mean, Amelia Clark didn't write the lines. Right. but And unfortunately, it's it's because, I think at least um, a great deal of it is because Daenerys's little lines always get used in the trailers Mm -hmm. and so they're trying to give us some idea of what the show is about but then in an actual conversation they make no sense yeah and in the conversation with Tyrion, who's a real wordsmith right yeah and wants to talk and wants to chat and it's almost like danny keeps trying to like end the conversation (laughs) it's like all my all my lines are like the final line and then you walk out or like we cut away yeah but we still linger here in these and so she almost feels like this weird, yeah, made-for-trailers kind of robot character here. And Tyrion's like, uh, well, you know what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that she, yeah. And I think the line that I'm thinking that's most, that it's most guilty is the conversation about Stark, Lannister, Tyrell. Mm-hmm. First this one's on top, then that one's on top. And on and on it goes, crushing the people below. Guys, this is mostly from memory, so <laughs> be impressed. And he says, it's a beautiful dream, stopping the wheel you're not the first to dream it. And she says, I'm not going to stop the wheel. I'm going to break the wheel. My question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to break the wheel? Does it mean to kill all of the, the like, to, to destroy all of the major houses and just install a Targaryen dynasty again? Because that happened mm-hmm. and it ended badly. What is her plan? Yeah, I think it has to be that She's not going to install no a democracy. More, yeah, that there will be no more transfer of power. No term limits. Right. I mean, that's... If you're, if you're breaking the wheel, I think, means no one else will have a chance for power except who I decide... Like, except my line. Right? Yeah. Well, that's that's what it seems like anyway, right? Maybe, maybe it does... Well... I was going to say, maybe it does mean democracy, but then you would have this, this turnover. I Constant guess transfer of power. Maybe maybe she's not focusing so much on the transfer of power so much as just like the system that would create the wheel is what she's interested in breaking. So that's maybe what Tyrion is saying. Tyrion is maybe ha- having our argument here, saying like the idea of like ending term limits and like just having somebody in charge for the whole time. Yeah. And Danny is maybe saying, I'm not interested in just like doing that. We need to sort of break down the whole system and and rebuild it and we'll see how that pans out (laughs) but i'm just uh especially since it's going really poorly in marine yeah i'm so curious i mean what i love about this conversation is that Tyrion suggests maybe you should stay in marine yeah and i actually think that's really good advice i mean it wouldn't it wouldn't be good for the structure of the show if daenerys just stayed in essos but since her project is uh, ending slavery and she's already, you know, she's like, she's going to be a, a, a foreign queen no matter where she goes. The advice that he's like, maybe you should want something other than the Iron Throne, I think is actually a pretty good observation. Yeah. And it's strange, you know, it, this gets at to a little bit of the conflict as to why Danny wants to go to Westeros, right? Her justification is it's my home. And Tyrion's like, nobody knows you there. Yeah. Like the last Targaryen who did this, it killed all these people. And Mm -hmm. so like, what's the, what's the point? Like, why really do you want to do this? And I think it's just, it's one of those answers that the show more or less glosses over, especially by the time she actually decides she wants to go. 
Yeah. To leave Dario in charge. <laughs> right. <laughs> Making excellent decisions about Essos. I'm sure they're all doing fine. The guy who just said, let's kill all the wise rich people. Also, who said, as a ruler, you're either a butcher or meat. Right. So, yeah. Good king. Good yeah. job. Yeah. So, there's that conversation. I think we do see both in their sort of one-on-one where they're drinking and also in the first scene where Tyrion is, is talking to... Daenerys about what he should what she should do about Jorah Mm -hmm. I think I was I was confused last episode about like what is Daenerys's actual plan for dealing with people and and how much of this is from her own brain and how much of it is is Dario's influence and I in this episode I really did see that Tyrion offers an alternative to Dario that like you can inspire love and devotion and murder isn't the only way to rule people Mm -hmm. so at least for that I was like it makes some sense why he's been brought in and, and that he is this sort of tempering influence on some of the other advice she's been getting i think Tyrion definitely commands the scenes here more than than daenerys it definitely feels like we're following him and this is about his meeting with daenerys not necessarily the other way around Mm -hmm. i think maybe part of that had to do with the circumstance that the last episode where Tyrion and jorah were revealed to her it was just it, it was a Tyrion and Jorah scene that then Daenerys seemed like she just kind of waded into. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we're doing this thing. Daenerys is here. So let's include that. And so that was kind of the lead into this. And now it's sort of like, it's like we're continuing the Tyrion and Jorah story. And oh, and Daenerys is still here. And so we're going to have these conversations happen. Yeah. And I think that will certainly transfer the other way come season seven. I don't remember how some of the stuff... Well, I guess she's separated for them next season. So I guess we that's how they... They will definitely that. be yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all, I'm just going to keep piling on Daenerys right now. She talks about ending slavery in Marine and that being true and that being her project for the rest of her life. But we see in the same episode and actually in the next scene that slavery is still happening mm-hmm. because Jorah is able to sell himself back into slavery to fight in the pits. Right. And this was something that Sir Barristan rest in peace that he mentioned that like with opening the fighting reopening the fighting pits that slavery would still exist and that's true so what has daenerys actually accomplished it's hmm. a good question i'm sorry I'm, I'm gonna go really negative on daenerys today but I, i'm and they're doing i mean the show is is doing it on purpose she's talking about that she has ended slavery and we see in the next scene no she hasn't so what are we supposed to feel are her actual accomplishments i mean i'm not sure as far as accomplishments go i think she still has she still has in marine her freed people there some some of them at least the ones that she's maybe brought with her Mm -hmm. from other places i think there's a lot of like i think there's a lot of heart is in the right place characterization with daenerys that we're being given here where she always means well and a lot of these things are less like going to end up as accomplishments more so than like learning moments for her <laughs> which again yeah there there's a lot of problematic elements to that but i think that's i, I don't know i think that's kind of what we're being given yeah i'm sorry i, I put you on the spot i'm no, like defend no. daenerys's track record to me <laughs> i mean i it's one of the things that in the books and the show is still somewhat unresolved and and i think once we get to the part where she's now with Tyrion here starting to set her eyes on westeros and how can she sort of clean up things in marine and move on it, it definitely 
makes the whole marine arc be like okay well like what what it was really gained during this whole thing what what happened here that was that was of consequence that is sustainable or that you yeah. know will will continue after she's gone like what what was really going on here and i think in the books at least where it's left we see that like Daenerys still has a lot of transformation coming. Mm-hmm. She's having this moment where she's been taken out into the Dothraki Sea and she's on her own and she's having visions and just like having a terrible time. Mm-hmm. But there's this there's this feeling that like she's really there's still a lot about her that's going to change. And while that, there's a little bit of that in the next season, I think there's less of it mm-hmm. and that it's sort of her just like getting finding her way back to where she was. So I in the books I I may end up believing her as as a more competent leader i don't know that we've seen a lot of it i don't like when she finally does make it to westeros i don't know that she's i mean she's earned our love i guess as viewers but i don't think as a ruler no i i think there's a lot of the beginning of season seven or i guess really the end of season six even where it feels like she has to go to westeros like this is what needs to happen and almost like forget all that stuff back there like let's how can we just put a bow on this and move on so we don't have to think about it anymore and i hope that the books may they ever come to exist tie that stuff up in more interesting and perhaps even just like to leave things in more complicated ways or you know i don't know there's seems like there's a number of other ways that they could they could end that I certainly don't think the books will end uh, with putting Dario in charge. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I know that I've really gotten hooked on this, but it was just with the the conversations, especially with Tyrion, because Tyrion, we're going to see, is is the sort of is the is the angel on her shoulder, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure out like what does it actually say about what she does and what she wants and how she rules, and I don't know that we get a lot. I don't know if we're actually she left wants with to the whole... break the wheel, Kate. <laughs> break the wheel i i heard yeah which yeah. apparently Tyrion seems to think that this is like what what irks me about this more than anything is that Tyrion seems to latch onto it as if this is a metaphor that we should have been hearing like for five seasons now yeah and he's like oh yeah a lot of people dream about breaking the wheel like nobody dreams about breaking the wheel <laughs> nobody has said that <laughs> no one has ever tried yeah and it's also, to go back to da- um, Eamon's death last episode, someone who rejected power, which seems like an actual gesture of breaking the wheel. Mm-hmm. The show is all about people gathering power and, accru- and accruing it and trying to, to dominate others. Mm-hmm. And Eamon did not. And that seems like that is a sort of symbolic breaking the wheel. Yeah. Daenerys is not that. No. Daenerys gets more and more power throughout all the seasons. And also, when she finally gets over there in season seven... Tyrion's going to be like, hey, have you ever thought about democracy? Like, this isn't Daenerys' idea. She yeah. just, she's not like, I'm going to totally like change the system of government. Yeah. You know, she's still always like, it's my birthright. It's my home. Yeah. It's where I want to live. I want to rule everything. And I'm the mother of dragons. Yeah. And I have, so I have the muscle to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's a disconnect. Boo Daenerys. <laughs> boo. <laughs> or, you know, boo the show writers, right? Well, we'll definitely boo them. They're putting the words in her mouth. <laughs> Well, that was hard home. <laughs> yeah, uh, there wasn't really a great place. We started with the showstopper on that one, um, and that was definitely the the great episode end is yeah. on that boat drifting away. So let's not don't want to leave our listeners maybe who haven't watched the episode for a while think that the episode ends with Danny saying "break the wheel." It's not. It's better than that. No, the, um, I mean, and we 
I think we maybe approached the episode to make it seem as terrible as possible. Uh, yeah. It wasn't bad. No. Hard, and the parts of with John and, and Hard Home were actually quite good. But I'm, it's always going to... I mean, it will probably continue to be a sticking point for me because they want me to feel like Daenerys would be a great queen. And I'm not really sure why we should feel that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she can. she's uh, inflammable. Good for her. That's true. <laughs> Wait, inflammable is the same as flammable, right? Daenerys well, cannot be burned. I think inflammable... Because if you were immobile, you couldn't move. Yeah. I, I think it may be one of those where, like... <laughs> She's unflappable. <laughs> that too. But, like, valuable and invaluable mean the same thing. True. So that is all to say Daenerys cannot be burned, but that's not a reason that she should be queen. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. On the upside, this was our... The first two episodes that Miguel Sapochnik had directed, mm-hmm. I thought pretty deftly done again i think there were some real high points visually speaking in these episodes and particularly the the stuff up in the north but some of the other some of the other locations were were plenty fine it's just yeah. i felt like the the real show pieces were um at winterfell and at the at the wall yeah no so well done miguel well done he'll miguel. return i think next season and certainly season seven and he's being one of the directors being brought back for season eight. Yeah, One great. of the, the two. Well, especially if the episodes are up north. Yeah. I saw, I won't mention it. I saw a spoiler. Okay. For, oh, really? For for the next season. Okay. But I, we'll have to discuss if it if I'm going to say anything okay. or not. Yeah, we won't say it here. The the outside of the news, uh, the Game of Thrones specific news, we did learn that the WB are being uh, brought into the Star Wars universe now. They're going to be writing and producing yeah. a trilogy or some sort of new series. I don't know if they said trilogy of of Star Wars related movies. Neither of us seem that excited. I it, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's because we're just uh, in a mood where we're going to shit on everything today. Well, I also it's I'm in a mood where I feel like I they're always announcing more Star Wars stuff and uh I don't think we need that much of it. <laughs> so there's that. Uh I didn't realize Amelia Clark was in the Han Solo movie. Oh, is she? Have you not seen the trailer? I have seen it, but I maybe I just missed it. She's oh. a Wookiee? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's playing Chewbacca. Um Well on that note. <laughs> <laughs> so We'll close out here. We've got uh, all of our podcasts, of course, on mummersfarce.libson.com, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, all your usual hot spots for podcasts. Uh, we are also on Twitter at the Mummers Farce Pod, and you can email us at themummersfarcepodcast at gmail.com with comments and questions. So the next time we will have the finales, finale, finales of episode. Uh, sorry. <laughs> We need to wrap this up. <laughs> Listen, next time we're going to end season five with The Dance of Dragons and Mother's Mercy, two final episodes of the season. And uh, hopefully we'll have some big climactic moments here. I remember a couple things from each of these, but not a lot of some of the other details. So I'm very curious to see how some of these plot lines end this season. Yeah, I've got about three major points in my brain and I can't think of what anyone else is doing yeah mainly because of stuff that they put in the thumbnails yep (laughs) (laughs) anyway we will talk about those next week and we'll see you there so see you later kate bye dan bye